0: Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready. Get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs, baby. Hobby hustle. It's Friday. Time to get excited. Time to just... Congratulate yourself on closing out the week strong. I always feel really energized and invigorated when I wake up on Friday. And by Friday evening, I'm exhausted because that's why I'm putting in the work, putting in the energy. And I know all of you are too. I am really, really excited about today's conversation. Before I do that, hit the subscribe button. If you're enjoying what you're hearing on Stack and Slabs, I'm bringing it, I'm giving it my all. Make sure you tell a friend, follow me across all those social channels, drop into my DMs and say what's up on that IG. You know, I'm enjoying all those conversations. This conversation is one that I think is needed and something that really has been a topic of conversation on this show and other shows. And that's just the opportunity to innovate with technology and the hobby, make things more efficiently, make things run more efficient, make us enjoy the hobby even more than we already are. I think, you know, it's undeniable that this market is just continuing to expand. 8 billion dollar industry we're we're operating in right now. And I think with that, there's not a lot of regulations and there's not a lot of infrastructure, and so I think a positive is creative ideas, creative innovation and creative companies that pop up to help support this growth. I think that is needed in any market. And those are the types of things when I look at a market, um, when I look at a market expanding like the sports card industry, that are needed in order for it to be sustainable, to continue to grow, and for really cool stuff to happen. So I read an article called Ready to Invest Areas for Angel and Venture Capital Investment in the Sports Card Industry. Read it, loved it. Reach out to the author. His name's Darren Herman, Midlife Crisis Cards. You might follow him already if you don't, make sure you hit the follow button on his page on Instagram. But based on his background, what he does professionally, on the um, be, having a technology background, but then also working in private equity and working in doing some inv- angel investing himself, and being a avid collector and buyer and seller in the sports card market. He was someone I felt compelled to get on the show. I think you're gonna really enjoy this perspective and I hope it gets you to think about opportunities and what is possible in the hobby. And if you got really good and creative ideas, make sure you talk about them and share them. Without further ado, I'm gonna kick it to the conversation. Enjoy this one with Darren. What is up everyone? Welcome back. I'm really excited about the conversation we have today. I'm going to start with a story. Um, In between meetings, I do what we all do and grab my phone, flipping through the social media feeds, and I had a pattern interrupt. And I think it was my man, Corey, also known as Yamwax, had reposted an article. And the article was, Ready to Invest, Areas for Angel and Venture Capital Investment in the Sports Card Industry. The headline of this article caught my attention. It is something that spoke to me in the world that I come from professionally on the technology side. We deal a lot with VC money, and um, in my background and looking at the hobby, definitely see a lot of opportunity for innovation. So, read the article. I had a lot. I, I had a lot of yep, yep, yep as I was reading that. At the end of it, saw the author and saw that he had an Instagram handle. Direct messaged him. Started the conversation. Have had a conversation since and said, hey come on the podcast let's talk about the article so the author of the article is today's guest darren herman darren happy friday as we record this how are you doing today
1: happy friday you know it was fun it's a long time listener first time caller this is one of those <laughs> exciting times where I get to you know chat with you it doesn't be fun
0: yeah awesome so maybe um maybe you give a little bit of background on your career history and then kind of your, what you're doing in the hobby so far. I think, uh, you,
1: you do a better job of uh, explaining, uh, your background than I would. Um, so I guess I'll come at it hobby, then background and then sort of career. Um, but, uh, I don't know, close to 40 years ago, I started to collect cards. Um, and, uh, probably made every mistake any child (laughs) would uh, collecting cards, Um, because my parents, well, specifically, my father wasn't from America and had no idea what sports cards were. And so it was really my brother and I fumbling along, teaching each other, you know, three-year difference, the blind leading the blind, so to speak, Um, and, uh, you know, we bent every edge and scratched every card and thought that autographed cards were worth more, so we autographed our own cards thinking they'd be worth more and uh you know we did all that fun stuff and what's cool about that is we you know we learned the hard way that that's the wrong way to do it but i think sometimes the best way to learn is by doing it wrong so you don't do it again um and uh um the one thing though growing up that you know my mother always instilled in us uh, whether or not it was cards or not was you clean up after yourself and uh, uh she hated when we had like hundreds or thousands of cards just lying around the house and so one day she just Somehow came home with like binders and boxes, and she taught us how to take like take our cards and put them in the binder, and take her cards and put them in the boxes and get them away. Um, and so, you know, the one saving grace of growing up with a you know my mom like that was, you know, I may have bent my edges and signed my own cards, but at least they're in decent condition they've been cardboard boxes and binders since then. Um, fast forward 35 years. Um, life happened and i got distracted and uh um uh but uh i had been to a bunch of dinners with some close friends and lunches with some close friends that that collect cards many you know you know and um every time i'd walk away from those dinners and lunches i was like i probably should buy you know what you know they were talking about during lunch and i never did um but my kids uh, you know finally got to the age that they were able you know that they're legitimately starting to collect and I'd buy them some wax and, you know, we'd rip open packs and see what there is. And I teach my kids not to make the mistakes that I made. Um, and that's really been happening over the last four years. And it was really about a year ago, um, uh, where we were just ripping open some packs and I was looking at what my son had and he had like 2012 Kawhi Leonard's and a bunch of other like cards. Wow. You got some good cards there. And I like, it finally like hit me. Um, and I kind of got the bug, the itch again. And uh, I'd gone out for lunch with a friend again, who was a big collector and mentioned a bunch of cards and finally came home and I was like, Sherry, my wife. I was like, no, I'm gonna take thousand dollars and I'm just gonna buy as many of this LeBron James tops as I possibly can. And I was able to buy, you know, a bunch, you know, average price, about hundred bucks. I was getting it from anywhere from 90 to $110 PSA 10. And, uh, and I did that in January for Luca. Um and not eTops but other. And um and then in March, my wife came in to my my home office because I was home for COVID and and uh she uh she's like so what are you doing with those cards? <laughs> like what's going on? And uh she's like you got a bunch of money tied up. And uh I looked them up and I was like, Holy cow, like those ninety dollar cards are now trading at like fourteen hundred dollars. And I didn't talk about what I do in my career, but I'm an investor at least these days and you know a 90 to a 1400 trade is is pretty good um and so i i sold uh what what i'd call the principal of all the cards so the two thousand just over two thousand dollars worth of the cards uh and then i kept all the rest and that's been house money ever since and i've been able to build a portfolio off that um and uh so to this day you know have bought you know I don't know. Thousands of cards. You know, have a decent collection. By far, not the biggest in the world, but I'm I'm pretty proud of it. I don't just buy, uh, you know, the top ten thousand cards. I'm I'm all about art, and I love like '91 Skybox basketball with the white backgrounds and all the colors. I'm a big Panini um, status fan. Um, I know it doesn't get a lot of love. It's sort of overlooked in the industry, um, but I love the colors. It does remind me of the '91 Skyboxes. I love the color blasts. I love the kabooms. Like I like anything that kind of brings art into uh, the, uh, the sports world. Um, and uh, so there's that. Uh, and then uh, my, my children, actually we, were, we didn't even talk about this, but like my children, I've used this time that I've not been traveling because we've been grounded for COVID, but I'm working from home to teach entrepreneurship. Uh, and uh, I my kids wanted to learn how to like create a website and sell stuff and make Instagram ads and TikTok stuff, so we came up with this idea of midlife crisis cards. And uh, you know, my wife named it, she gets thank darren you're having a midlife crisis, and uh, clever
0: name, clever yeah, name,
1: I love it, and um, everyone laughs, um, and uh. I, I, I hop into breaks online on Instagram or on Loop or whatever, and in the in the break it's a midlife, I'm like, "Yo, what's going on, man?" And uh, yeah, I just love it. But uh, it's been fun because now we've like stood up a website. We've got an Instagram account, and my ten and twelve year olds are like doing it. And you know, we're selling cards, and so they're like packing the cards, and we got we created this thing called the cardboard box, and they're 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 the ones that are helping assemble it, and. know it's teaching them a lot and it's kind of you know they don't realize that they're like in school getting their you know street mba Mm -hmm. (laughs) um their street hustle mba but like you know they're loving it because it's sports cards so they it's like fun to them so it's like a fun school and you know i am not home a ton but now i am and so it's a fun way to bond with the kids so fast forward to work um you know i worked at an investment fund we've got 10 or 11 different funds, depending upon the stage of the business and uh, everything from venture capital, all the way out to sort of hedge fund type stuff. And I sit in private equity and basically the definition of private equity is we, when we uh, invest in businesses, we acquire the business. So we're usually buying over 51% of the business um, and we want to grow. And, uh, uh, and so this has been a time where like my work world, in my hobby world, they are colliding, and I've not really had that too much before. Um, and so, you know, I've tried to be the champion for collectibles and sports cards within our organization um, and really shine light on all the opportunities. And one of the things that, you know, I've learned over the years um, is, uh, you know, take investment theses and investment ideas and make them public and learn in the public um, one of my mentor, well, one of the people who I aspire to, you know, does that extremely well. And I've always watched him do it in awe and I can almost, uh, you know, figure out every investment he's looking at by his blog post. but, um, you know, uh, I try and do that too. And that's, I guess what you found is, you know, I've been just writing publicly about, you know, the sports card space, you know, not really keeping the private equity, the private, the private equity and making it more public, but, you know, it's been fun because what ends up happening is people reach out to me um, and say, hey, you know, you forgot this or hey, you know, hey, I'm doing this. Did you even know like we're doing this or, you know, we should talk. Um, and so it just spurs lots of conversations. And, you know, Brett, like this is how we got together, which is kind of cool. Totally. And uh, so that's the background. So I'm studying the space as an investor, you know, both for my firm, but also as an angel investor. Uh, and then as a hobbyist, and so I'm coming at it sort of with multiple directions. Sorry for the long monologue. No, no, is-
0: that's great. There's actually a lot to unpack there. So a couple of things. One, I am finding and talking with people. There is just this underground community of people that love status. That's one thing. Um, that that is a product that I know uh, Kyle on Wax Museum. He he just basically did it a whole episode. It was like a love letter to status. So that I that's it. That yeah. Make sure you check that out. Um, two, I think. What you're doing with your son is super interesting and fun it gives you know the opportunity i talk a lot about this just like getting your getting your hands on everything whether it's social media buying and selling packaging um learning how the market works so i think i think that's fun and i'm sure you both have learned a lot about um just the the market and the industry just through that experience um the kind of my question that i'm curious on is in your, in your firm, working with people and talking about collectibles and opportunity, are you having to pitch this market as a opportunity? Do people that you're working with and around understand it? How do those conversations go?
1: So we, we, uh, we are predisposed to sports, uh, just through some of the investments that we've made in the past. And so we, we understand the sports space. Um, there are a lot of folks at the firm that, you know, have some collection. Um, and beyond just my firm, other firms too that I've spoken with, um, of cards or collectibles or autographs or whatever. Um the hardest part I'd say uh that we wrestle with um is you know, this is gonna get pretty technical and we're gonna dive in really fast if you want to go there right now. Let's um, let's go. Yep. The the hardest part that we wrestle with is what percentage of the industry right now is what we term the COVID bump. Mm. And so you know, we are very analytical investors. Um, you know, there's not enough hours in the day for the amount of data that we wanna get our hands on. And, you know, we, when we make a bid for a company, you know, we don't wanna overpay. You also don't wanna underpay, but you don't wanna overpay. And so, you know, the card market has been growing for years. So, you know, let's just keep, you know, I, I it's not just due to COVID that the card market's growing, but if we look at the statistics, and you look at web traffic data, or you look at sales data, or you look at you know leading indicators of the sports card market, it was like ski slope <laughs> acceleration uh, in end of March and took off, and so. One of the one of the things that you know where I work has has taught me is the business is good. It's going to be good for a while, and so you don't need to be the first one at the party. And so you know when I look at investing in the sports card space from a private equity perspective, wearing my work hat, uh, you know we can wait and see how COVID has affected the sports card space because if COVID goes away, which I hope it does for all of our state, um, you know, if and when it goes away, will the same amount of excitement, dollars, attention be in the sports card space, or more, or will it be less? And if it's less, then the market cap theoretically will drop. And you don't want to be paying for companies in the sports card space before the drop. Uh, And, but, it could be more, but that's a risk that we are willing to take because of the hyper growth of the sports card space. And we can talk about why we think it or why I think it has grown. Now with that said, if I'm a venture investor and I'm early stage and I'm coming in for early stage companies coming into this, like this space, you know, like what I've done as an angel investor, then I probably want to be jumping in now because really interesting companies are starting. But it's a different risk tolerance, and so all investments are, you know, whether you're a seed investor, an angel investor, or a a private equity investor, or credit investor, or debt, whatever, is you're all writing a check. It's just a check to a company based upon certain amount of risk tolerance, and sort of the way you look at it. And so, you know, venture probably the most risky, um, and uh, private equity probably on the other side of that um and so it just really depends where you are on that spectrum
0: yeah so i'm curious in terms of uh the the covid bump analyzing its impact and trying to understand and make sense of the momentum and obviously and i think it was about august there was some pullback in terms of sales of sports cards there was dip a dip Are, are are you analyzing the transaction data of sports cards or their other um factors that you're you're looking at when you're trying to figure out
1: if this is going to
0: if the momentum is going to continue or not
1: we're looking at a lot of input um and and you know we look at micro factors such as you know transactional data then you're looking at macro factors um you know stuff you know that could be correlated or causated to you know what it happens to be so you know one of the one of the things that we saw was like you know how much impact would Football have on basketball, um, and you know, in August you're mentioning August saw a decline in in basketball cards or sports cards. Well, the thought was going to be, you know, those basketball fans uh, uh, or basketball card speculators were going to shift over to buying, you know, the quarterbacks of football, um, and that happened. But football hasn't exactly taken off the way that everyone thought football was going to mm-hmm. take off, and. You know, I'm not doubting football, and I got my Tua and Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert cards myself. <laughs> um, but like, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's not exactly as gangbusters as what we saw with the NBA this past season. And what I'm super curious about is, you know, right about now and forward through December 22nd and and beyond, is do we see you know basketball coming back with as much excitement or more? uh than what we had, you know, in uh the 2019 20 Um, and that's you know, that's gonna be really telling. And I think if we see that excitement, um, you know, uh, not just, you know, fans saying, hey, basketball's back, but you know, um, you know, saying that with their wallet for sports cards, um, and the secondary markets going gangbusters like you know, we we haven't seen in a long time, um, which what we've just witnessed, you know. I think that gets us really excited for, you know, making a, a really interesting uh, uh, investment, uh, you know, as we think about next year.
0: Yeah. And I, I love that. And I, uh, I think I, I have been, I, my expectations for football weren't more what they ended up being and that's fine. Um, but now it's like looking onto, since we've got a date that the NBA starting back, starting to see if there's any indicators that are going to tell me that uh, we're gonna see some growth that we, we did back in the March timeframe. So looking at, you know, the top tier players like a Luka or a LeBron and a Giannis and analyzing and seeing what's happening with their cards. And from all the early indications of what I've seen so far, those are beginning to tick upward, which yeah. is positive. Is that, are you seeing the same things?
1: Yeah, uh, we are. And, and, you know, what's cool is, you know, we're probably using some of the same sources, right? You know and uh you know card ladder and, and market movers and and Parapeak and you know all the sort of pricing engines out there are uh you know super helpful to seeing that and you know we're we're seeing that what's cool i've what i what i've noticed and why this is to me an odd year um uh is because i believe the floor so investment ceiling and investment floor you know, the floor is the, the bottom that a card will hit, the ceilings, the high, you know, the floors didn't go as low as I would have expected mm-hmm. because of how short the offseason has been. Like, there wasn't really time in the NBA to forget about it. That's right. Like, in previous years, and most years, and every year except for this year, we had a longer offseason. And so, you know, our bodies adjusted to other sports being on television. And, you know, yes, we thought of basketball, but basketball is not like the thing that we're always in. I mean, we're only three or four weeks out of the NBA Finals right now. Like LeBron just walked off the floor with a championship, like, and 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 now he's about to walk back on the floor to start the season. like.
0: When, when this when this episode goes live, the NBA
1: draft will have happened. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy. it's It's nuts. But so that meant, so from an investment perspective, you know the floors have stayed higher. So the question then will become, if we think of the delta, you know the difference between the floor and the ceiling in a normal time, will we see the difference between the floor and the ceiling be you know roughly the same? which then means because the floor is higher, the ceiling then gets higher. And so yeah. we may see new highs set for some of these cards. But for me, that's kind of, you know, that's like dangerous territory. <laughs> like these cards, you know, base cards are trading pretty damn high right now. And, you know, how much higher can these base cards go?
0: I got I got a personal uh, story on on just the base cards and a guy, everyone who's listening to, Knows and is watching his market closely. And I was sitting and I had a Luca PSA 10 Prism card and I I bought it at $300 in like the end of February. And, you know, I look at the population of that card and I see every like the card. I'm just like, when is this card going to go down? Well, it's continuing to track back up. And so I just personally, I did a little like case study. I said, you know, like. I'm not going to go and invest and buy a bunch of Luca cards. I know he's fantastic, but like that 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 game, it's just a little too high for me, and I, I I'm not attached to him emotionally. Yeah. So I put it out on my stories, and I said I got a Luca card for sale. Here's the price. It, it was a little under last sale. I got just bombarded with interest, like twenty direct messages within the first uh, twenty minutes of the the card being posted. And I still, if I open up my phone right now, I'd still have people, is this card for sale still? Is this card yeah. for sales? And it just, it blows my mind to how much demand there is for that card. And so I think just from that personal story, people are realizing NBA is right around the corner. People are attached to Luca. He's in the hearts and minds of collectors. People want a piece of him. So I think if that is any early indication of what we're, we can expect, I'm expecting I don't know if it'll go back to what it was um, in the March time frame, but I expect it to be um, the market to be pretty strong once tip off happens.
1: I'm excited for it. I am. I'm curious to see what Panini puts out next year. Yeah. Um, you know, New release every week. It seems like. Yeah. Which scares me too. Um, you know, we uh, way back when, you know, when we were card collecting, you know, we had the junk wax era. But when we were in it, we didn't think that. Remember that, remember? Like when we were in that, it was, let's keep going. You know, these are awesome. These are great cards. And all of a sudden you realize your Nolan Ryans and Tony Gwynns and everything else are worth nothing. Um, And and so, you know, what I worry, and it's it's different dynamics, um, but it's, you know, do I worry that, you know, we, there's, you know, 40 different variations of a LeBron James in the same set. Like, like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's 39 different parallels and there's like two different base cards and so on and so forth. And like, you know, you do that across how many sets still within the Panini umbrella, you know, how, like just the populations of these cards just become tremendous. And, you know, usually it's scarcity that drives value. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so, uh, you know, I, I worry about that, but at least, you know, way back when, when I think about the 80s and 90s, you know, it was because all the different companies weren't doing population control amongst each other. So they're all just putting out a whole bunch of cards, because there wasn't exclusive licenses by, you know, by uh, sport. Now there are. And so I'm hoping Panini has, you know, the fan in mind, as opposed to their pockets, so that they, uh, you know, aren't just maximizing how much they're selling, they're also managing the population of the cards in the market to make for a long term, uh, you know, opportunity, not just maximizing for the short term.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think the the benefit of being in the digital world and the world we live in with social media that, you know, the hope is that transparency is there. And, you know, this question seems to get brought up a lot. Um, and I think I, the hope is that, you know, the collectors, it has our best interest, interest at hand. Um, but I, I want to get into the, the, your article. Cause I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, the first thing maybe is that goes along the lines of this is you, you presented for people who you got to check out the article one, if you haven't already, but for people who have no idea what's going on, just people love pictures and love graphs and charts. And you have a really good explanation of kind of how it works. And it gets my thought process rolling on just Panini, the releases, and a lot of this activity is being driven from the card companies. And then the, the, the product is going to breakers, obviously. Breakers have kind of, have a pivotal role in this whole the way this whole thing works. Um, and so to me, I've looked at all of these. I, I go to Instagram, I check out all the groups. These breakers are selling out. So there's everything. So like the interest is there, the demand is there. Um, how do you like see break like the breaking community breaking culture like what's your perspective, do you think that it continues to grow at the rate it it's growing right now and. Uh, companies like panini continue continue to feed into them um, what's your perspective, because I imagine that's something you've looked at um, since digging into the market.
1: yeah uh, well so you know the the if flows from manufacturer. So, you know, the manufacturers such as Topps, Upper Deck, Panini, et cetera, grab a license from the IP holders such as, you know, the NFL or NBA or MLB, et cetera. And then Panini, let's say, gets the NBA license. Then they work with distributors. And then there's distributors who distribute to, you know, the Walmarts and Targets. And then there's distributors who distribute to the LCS, the local, you know, hobby shop. Um, and, uh, and then from there, you or I walk into the hobby shop or target or wherever, and we go buy, um, you know, our cards, if we can, (laughs) if we can, if they're on the shelves, um, and, uh, we try, um, now distributors are also starting to sell to high volume buyers that don't have hobby shops. Um, it's harder, but they're doing it. Um, and, uh, and some of those folks are, you know, the breakers um, and, you know, those breakers could be hobby shops, like, you know, Jaspie's out in uh, Hermosa Beach um, or Mealy Pops or, you know, name, you know, made some, right. There's like, some awesome, like card breakers, like, you know, there's some, there's some cool ones um, and many others. Um, uh, and then there's, uh, you know, breakers who, you know, aren't attached to a storefront um, that have a more limited selection of inventory. And we can talk about that, but that's a whole different story. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, folks that, you know, started just, you know, breaking on Instagram or breaking on Facebook, you know, the, the, the guys, you know, pull the pole wax guys before, you know, they, uh, you know, they got their storefront or, you know, uh, daddy rips or Southern, you know, Southern Rips or, you know, all the different, you know, nine o'clock at night on Instagram, there's like, to go fine. Um, and, and so, you know, breakers. Why I think breakers have caught on so much right now, um, and I'm a fan of it. Don't get me wrong, um, but I think it's because all the hobby shops and everything were closed because they were an essential businesses. Um, so, like COVID is really, I believe, has played a huge role in this market. Um, and you know, it's you know all of the local you know hobby shops and to an extent the WalMarts and Targets et cetera, are all shut down. You got to remember that for you know a period of time especially the hobby shops um and 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 then walmart and target can't keep a card on a shelf um and so there's no place to get cards like you know other than ebay com c star you know um you know uh, if i left you out i'm sorry like you know there's no digital place that like you can't go get cards physically it's very difficult you, you know there's certain you know it, it's hard and so Breaking has been like the thing because we're all stuck at home, we all have in the United States, you know we've got devices that have the Internet. And it's how how hard is it to go online onto Instagram at nine o'clock at night and pick whatever you want it's like a buffet it's like walking into you know you're 99 or whatever and like literally just going to a buffet of cards and you know within less than a week those cards end up at your house. Uh, and so I think, you know, if we think about this from like an investments perspective, which I think, you know, Brett, you wanted to like go in that direction, Yeah. is, you know, what's the change here? The change here is the belief in a customer experience back uh, opportunity. And what I mean by that is the customer experience of this whole world is I can now break sitting in my pajamas in bed next to my wife, my wife watching her own TV show that I don't give a shit about. And I'm, watch, you know, I'm on like Instagram doing what I'm gonna go do. Yeah. And I'm buying cards and she doesn't care because she's happy and I'm doing my thing. And I can do that on my time. And I'm having a great time because I'm chatting with, you know, wh- whoever's in you know, the break, they're rooting me on, I'm wishing them good luck. Maybe we're trading, like someone gets an RJ Barrett, I'll be all over that because I'm a lonely Knicks fan. <laughs> and, uh, so I try and get every RJ, I care Mitchell Robinson that I can, and, uh, generally I can get those pretty cheap. Um, and, uh, and I, it's, it's been an amazing experience and, you know, that bore, uh, you know, one of the new technologies, you know, by some an investor like loop, um, which was, you know, completely created for, you know, the customer experience of breakers, um, and, you know, doing everything in one, one act. You know the uh, you know everything from you know participating with the video and then all doing all the transactions and commerce and not having to leave and go to PayPal or Venmo or Cash App or whatever to go uh, you know pay for your, all your stuff and so that's been cool and so break I think Breakers have been you know like the twenty four seven hobby shop because the hobby shops were all closed and and so it's been super neat to see it that way.
0: Yeah, and I think just the th- you there that is a company that is solving a current customer experience problem that you might not realize you're going through, but you're going through, and that is you jump into, let's say, pull Wax's IG and there's a break and you're evaluating what's breaking tonight and you realize, oh, wow, this is a break I wanna be in. Well, then what happens, right? You have to drop out of the pull wax break. You have to go hit, yeah, you have to hit the pull wax. I mean, it's just, it is all of these steps and all of these motions that you're going through that might seem normal to you at right right now but with technology and a a system like or a platform like loop in place it can help streamline the entire experience so i think like when i feel like i can get down in the weeds when i talk to people about this type of thing um because it's kind of what i work on professionally and the world darren lives in but just want to make sure that's explaining where we're talking about like innovation and solving problems it's eliminating steps and making the experience a lot better for the end user
1: yeah and like there are firms like dedicated to just studying that like firms like ideo or fahrenheit 212 or frog design and other firms like that that are out there that irrespective of the uh the you know the the product or the sector the industry or whatever it's Start with the oops, start with the customer, you know, or prospect, and then work backwards, and then make the experience as good as it can be, uh, and uh, and then sort of link everything together. And you know, when you think about it, you know, we all, you know, assuming everyone who you know listens to the podcast, you know, they're all on you know Instagram or 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 YouTube or whatever. Instagram and YouTube weren't built for card breaks, right? <laughs> and so you know. What we're doing is like MacGyvering and jerry-rigging a platform that wasn't built for what we're doing to it. Um, And we are, work. you know, we're forcing them to work, you know, in our world, whereas I think you can invest and create some really cool customer experiences on potentially new platforms that'll make everyone's experience much better. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I get excited about.
0: Definitely. And there's other, um, it's not just breaking Um, you and your article, you call out other opportunities, which I think we can maybe touch on and talk a little bit about because I think they're all opportunities ripe for innovation. Um, One that is in the top, that is top of mind for almost everybody. You can't go a day without opening up Twitter or Instagram and have Someone sharing their uh, negative experience just with grading in general. Um, but like grading is that is like getting s- slabs back from these companies is how you not only make money, but you move up the ladder and get the cards you want. It's it is kind of where the rubber meets the road because that is the commodity that everybody wants. But they're it, based on the backlog and based on lack of innovation from some of these companies, which I think you look at a PSA and they, they've, they've, they've. It seems like they're moving in the right direction now. Uh, 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 Beckett, maybe not so much right now. Um, but what do you see with just like opportunities with grading in terms of like what's possible? Like from on
1: your end. I woke up. Well, actually, uh, last night, right before I went to bed, I read all that stuff about Beckett uh, and the uh, multiple nine fives with the same serial number. I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> This this is not good. Um, but, um, you know, so first and foremost within grading, you know, I've been a pretty, uh, uh, a pretty big voice here. You know, if 35 years goes by and you're doing something the exact same way, you should probably rethink how you're doing it. And, you know, I know that may not be fair to everything that's going on within PSA, Beckett, and SGC, like inside the walls, but there's still human-led uh, grading process, and there's a lot of subjectivity. And like, just look at, you know, I was I was I was talking to someone last night who had got a PS a card he sent in to PSA. He got an eight, and he's like, "I'm cracking this open. I'm sending it back. Send it back. He got a nine. He's like, "I'm cracking this open. I'm sending it back. He got a ten. <laughs> like same card." It went from an eight to a nine to 10. It took them about a year to do all three, like, you know, all that because of the timelines. Um, But like, that's huge. Um, And, you know, that's a problem. It truly is. You know, we like the big thing in grading and the reason why we get our cards graded is for the key word of trust, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because grading then creates trust. And then trust allows us to trust each other when we're selling or buying or you know, doing everything. But if we don't have trust, then what's a grade? Uh, and, and so you know, those, that's really being called into question right now. The other thing I worry about with grading is we got 4 million cards sitting waiting to hit the market across the grading companies. Some people have told me more. And so what is the value of a graded card? Uh, so, you know, if I think about, okay, it's cool to have, you know, today, you know, a Luca PSA 10, whatever, but there's probably thousands of Luca PSA 10 sitting within PSA or BGS or SGC right now, waiting to come to the market. And what right. So, is- so,
0: so when those do come to the market, what um, will the demand still be there? Will the price point stay firm or will it go down? Those are the types of things that people need to be considering when they're paying to the... $1,500 to $2,000 for a PSA 10 Luka Prism.
1: Yeah. And, and then, you know, if I'm thinking about it as foundationally as a grading company, um, you know, what does that do to me? Are people, you know, is grading still as important? Um, and so, you know, what I see within the grading world is, you know, the graders are starting to move up market, you know, they're starting to charge more. Um, you know, we all saw that and half the internet revolted against, you know, that um you know the shift is what is it 50 or 75 dollars the psa um uh, but if they're moving up to that price point there's a lot of room to play under it and so what what is that opportunity i don't know um well i do know but there, uh, you know what's the opportunity to play at a lower price point point? and you know can you use technology to do a whole bunch of grading and can i not even send my card in can i use that technology here in my own home in seconds or milliseconds to assess a card. And then, you know, you feel comfortable that the card's been assessed by such technology that we can then transact with each other. And I think that's like the holy grail rather than sending it out to PSA, waiting, getting it back, etc., You know, being able to do it to raw cards in seconds, that opens up a tremendous opportunity within the marketplace
0: and yeah i get
1: excited about that
0: yeah that makes me excited too um and it seems like whenever there's conversations that i'm in regarding grading and disruption in the market the response i always get back is well i don't know if that's gonna work because you know these beckett and psa and sgc um for a lesser amount is they're the standard and this is what people want Um, But like, I always think about it from the perspective of, well, like, you know, there was a moment in time, not well, it maybe it was a long time ago, but for a long period of time where people on their Friday nights for entertainment, they got in their car and they headed to Blockbuster and they went and they, you know, checked out movies in store and brought them and then took them home, watched them, rewound them brought them back to Blockbuster and then Netflix happened and everything became streamlined and easier. So like in terms of like technology and uh, digital, digital grading and that sort of those aspirational innovations, is, is that like that type of like Netflix to Blockbuster disruption, the type of thing you're kind of thinking about when uh, you're thinking about potential improvements with grading?
1: Yes. Like, you know, an exponential change to the market. And there's very few markets, you know, outside of, you know, maybe like the staples, like coffee or, you know, cereal or something like that, that hasn't changed in 35 years. You know, there a lot have. And so, you know, w- that opportunity is ripe right now. And, and I would think a lot. Now, the naysayers here, and I've heard plenty of the arguments, like, and I agree, you know, PSA, many people use PSA and BGS, you know, because of their brand um and you know beckett stands for a lot and psa stands for a lot uh and so you know how how do you build a grading company that has the brand recognition and the brand trust uh overnight and you don't it's impossible it's almost impossible um and uh you know if hypothetically if StockX started a grading company tomorrow would you trade it uh, treat it, you know and, and trust it as much as you know, you would, you would trust uh, PSA, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, it's something to think about. And so, you know, I think uh, it's certainly ripe for opportunity. Trust needs to be in the ecosystem. I think that raw cards have a ton of value if we can start assessing them. Um, and, uh, you know, the graded cards are starting to see, you know, even counterfeit with them. And so, you know, how do we how do we combat that? kind of scary at the same time.
0: So so we'll move off a of grading, but just I want to comment on that. So like from my perspective and someone who thinks about brand building and that argument of just the brands of these companies, I look at it and be like, in my in my perspective is well, to me, they're I view them as someone who's been using them for about a year. It's more of a utility and I don't have a connection with them emotionally. They're just providing a service for me. So I think in terms of innovating and a company being built to help disrupt this. It's making it more one-to-one and less about one-to-many. It's like, I don't, I don't care that I'm getting an email from you that's a batch and blast email about your company updates. Make it about me. Make it about my cards. Make it about me, the end user. And it goes back to the customer experience thing. So my, my mind always goes back to that where I think there, there is opportunity to build and develop a brand around solving this problem that's directly focused on not lining the pockets and making as much revenue as possible from grading cards and having the subjectivity to it, but more direct it towards the end user or the people that are waiting for those cards to get back. So that's some, that's kind of just my perspective on that, but, um, moving on, this is one I'm just super curious about and I, I've thought about it, but not as, um, directly as you put it in just this idea of collection management Uh, and collection management software. And I think I want you to maybe describe it because it's definitely, when you describe it, it's definitely a pain point that everybody who's listening to this podcast goes through on a day-to-day basis
1: and might not know it. That's awesome. So this is my favorite one, to be honest. And this is probably nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, So this does not matter if you have five cards. If you have more than 10 cards, you need, this is like the, the important one. And, you know, usually if you have more than 10 cards, you have more than hundred cards, and if you have more than hundred cards, you have more than a thousand cards, sort of goes on. So the pain point here is if I put my hobbyist hat on and I go and buy a bunch of cards uh, and I put them in a box, I have no idea what the value of those cards are three weeks from now are in that box. You know, I may know them today and let's say they hold for the next week, but like anything after that next week, I don't know what the value is. And so if I come back to that box six months from now and there's 250 cards sitting in a BCW, you know, uh, uh, cardboard box, I got to go on eBay for those 250 cards or, you know, go on card ladder or, or, you know, market movers and type each one in and, uh, you know, see the value or save them within each one of those and, you know, use their, their apps to their fullest. Um, and that's hard, very hard. And so, you know, I see an opportunity for someone to create, you know, software um for the ability to, you know, take a, you know, take someone's collection, either digitize it or you know, get it, you know, get the cards into a, a collection management piece and then understand the market value of those cards at any given time. And then you can do a lot of things from there. You can, you know. You can build a marketplace off of that, a private marketplace, a public marketplace. You can, you know, you can create a social network off of there. You could create like a set uh, collector's network where you know, if the software knows what everyone has, then you can help people complete sets. Um, you know, you can facilitate trades, you know with this. There's a lot of things that you can do. But the pain point, really, I think, for everybody is, one, I want to understand what I have because all of us are like, oh, I got a lot of cards in a box. <laughs> um, I knew what I had. Maybe they're in a spreadsheet somewhere, but that's about it. Two, um, it's well, tell me the value of my cards. When should I buy? When should I sell? Um, uh, and then three, which I haven't talked about yet, but what if I wanted to sell them, how do I list them? And so like, is there like APIs that I can go then list the cards onto eBay or Com-C or Stockx, or you know you name it, uh, you know uh, whatever platform out there, and make it really, really easy to sell. Um, and and so that's like a call for someone come build this, please, because I want to <laughs> invest in it. Um, and you know I've met a couple of companies out there that are doing some stuff in the space, um, and I'm excited about it. Um, but I, I I don't see it. You know, i when I was coming back into this, and I think this was back in March, and I was googling, you know, for collection management software is pretty much the only software that existed was for like Windows 95. Uh, and so it shows the amount of innovation in the space. And, and a lot of that software has been sort of, you know, just sunset and just not kept up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would have thought it would have been. Um, now, I think a lot of folks that have come into the sports card market have been like speculators. And, you know, they're buying like 10 Michael Porter juniors and like 10 deandre and silvers and they're just trading those I think those are like less uh kind of you know core customers of this i think for the hobbyists in the space or the speculators with significant uh, uh, numbers of cards you know if you have over 100 cards you kind of need something like this and you know for a couple bucks a month subscription or more than a couple bucks a month subscription i think it's super interesting so what a lot of people are listening i can guarantee you are saying well why don't you just use market movers by sports card investor or use you know, card ladder, you know, by, uh, you know, our friend, Chris, et cetera, Um, you can. And I think those are great. The problem with those though, are that, uh, and this is like, you know, it's it's, it's not their fault. Um, It's, I don't have just the top 10,000 cards. And I know they're working really hard to continually add more cards to their libraries. And I think it's wonderful, like fantastic. But for someone like me, you know, I may have you know a hundred of the top ten thousand cards, but I like other types of cards, and you know um, they they speak to me. So like Skybox or, or 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 Status and so on and so forth. You know, those aren't in those platforms for the most part. Um, and so you know, I'd want to build you know a super far-reaching software uh, that indexes as much as it can. And I I went out and I built my own just for my own usage uh, because nothing is out there. Um, but the minute I can stop using my own software and use someone else's, I'm super excited about that absolutely.
0: so i'm I'm literally sitting here, and I've got like over here, I've got a just a stack stacks of slabs, just like the name of the show. I've got boxes of raw cards. I've got stuff everywhere. Like it is everywhere. And s- sometimes what happens is a card pops up that I have an alert for on eBay that is, very expensive, but it's a card I need. So in order for me to obtain this card, I need to make some quick moves and transactions and I need to get rid of some of these cards that I currently have. So I think what you're like having software, like a collection management system would definitely to me help facilitate this and streamline that process. I guess a, a, a hurdle potentially, and I'm sure you've thought of this, but just interested in your perspective is obviously all, indexing all of these cards that we all have takes a lot of time and that would that would that would be something we'd all maybe manually have to do is is that how you would see it play out manual or expediting the process through a service
1: yeah i think there can be a couple ways in i think there's like three ways in i think one is you know the manual put your fingers to the keyboard and key each one in um you know clearly not the best (laughs) uh two is you know take a picture of the front and back um and then you know maybe use Mechanical Turk or something like that to to key the card in, maybe do some, you know, optical, you know, image recognition or some other, you know, type of technology. Or the third sort of the high touch way is just mail your collection to a service, you know, and uh, have them, uh, you know, key it all in for you and then either vault it or send it back. Um, and, uh, you know, someone else essentially is doing it for you for, I don't know, 10 cents a card or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, I think those are probably the three areas plus or minus, um, to get that up and, you know, get you into the collection. And then I think the hardest part uh, of it all, as I think through it, because I've thought about this quite a bit, um, is to start because you're starting from zero. So, you know, you're, if you know, Brett, if you look across your room, you're probably seeing thousands of cards and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have time to do this. Like I got kids, I got sports, I got, you know, I got, I got duties to do and you know, you don't have time for it. And so you got to make it super, super easy to get people started. And then once they're started, maybe they can key in, you know, the cards as they get them. Um, But you know, to get the 10 or 20 or 30,000 cards that are sitting around them, you got to get started that way. And I think that's, uh, you have to offer some kind of service to really kickstart it. And I think once they have it too, like, they're not leaving, like, (laughs) sticky like, very sticky it's a soup like from a business perspective it's like actually a pretty damn good business because all the data is on your platform it's hard to move it and uh you know it's uh it's a good data set
0: absolutely i think there's just so it ripe for innovation this industry is that's the key to this conversation um i i'm interested i know we could chop it up forever but i'm interested just before i let you go like Going into 2021 and what you're looking at, like what do you have a big bet what what is a big bet you're making uh in terms of just the sports card market? Like where where's your head at and where's your primary focus? It can be from you as just a collector. It can also be you in terms of angel investing or private equity, just any way you want to take that. I'll give you one of each. How about that? So there we go.
1: As a collector, uh, I am a huge fan of select and status cards. And so what I didn't do well in 2019, 2020 was stay within the boundaries that I had created initially as I came into the year and said, this is what I'm gonna buy. And I kind of, you know, sprayed a little outside and got opportunistic. Um, And I think, you know, from a collection perspective, a lot of exposure in areas that I don't want a lot of exposure in. And I think, you know, um, whether that's base card or prism or something along those lines, you know, that are still hot, don't get me wrong, but trying to, you know, create a little more variety to that and stay within the swim lanes that I kind of create. So I love status. I love panini. uh, I like select um, and then color blast. You know, those are those are super cool cards. Um, In terms of, you know, big bets uh, from an investments perspective, You know, the macro thesis is, is, you know, I believe that there's still so much opportunity for um, uh, uh, technology and software to come into the sports card and collectible space that would make a better customer experience for the collectors, for the sellers uh, and the industry overall. And we don't have a lot of it, you know, Uh, And so I would love to see that. And, you know, the big bet is, you know, if it's super early stage and I have to do it as an angel, I'll jump in. You know, if it gets later stage and, uh, you know, there's a real true business behind it and it gets to, you know, the dollar amounts that get us excited at work, then we'll look at it as well. Um, But, you know, those are the big bets and, you know, uh, just need, you know, some better infrastructure that builds better customer experiences. Um, You know, that's the key thing. So that's what I'm excited about.
0: I love it. I hope everybody has uh, some thoughts and ideas generated from this conversation just in terms of maybe pain points you're having um, and opportunities that were talked about here. Um, Definitely, I think just recommendations would be reach out, reach out to me, reach out to Darren just if you've got ideas because the more collaboration and communication we all can have just Outside of this conversation, but on this topic, I think the more cool stuff is going to pop up, uh, Darren. Before I w- completely let you off the hook, we got a draft around the corner. Your squad's the Knicks. I'm just curious. Like going into this NBA season, uh, what 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 do you are the Knicks going to make any moves? Are they RJ Barrett? Are you bullish on them? What are your thoughts on the New York Knicks going into this NBA season?
1: I'm I'm more bullish on the Knicks than the owner of the New York Knicks is. <laughs> That like that, maybe I'm a little outspoken there, but like the Knicks have not helped themselves uh, over over the years. Uh, but uh, I try and get to as many Knicks games as I can when I'm in New York, and and uh, so I love our core. Um, you know, I think RJ and Mitch, you know, don't don't screw it up, guys. Like like please don't trade them. Like I think RJ is going to be pretty good. I think Mitchell Robinson, if he can stay out of foul trouble, is going to be really good. Um, and, uh, there are some other players around it. And, you know, maybe we get someone pretty soon. We're hearing all the rumors, and, and, uh, I think we need someone, you know, pretty strong that can come in and mentor these kids. Um, and, uh, there's some of them available. And so I don't, you know, I'm not gonna say that the Knicks is gonna be the best team in New York. I think, you know, Brooklyn's gonna take that for (laughs) the foreseeable future. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not excited about the Knicks and, and, uh, you know, I uh, I'm excited. You know, I always have been, and always will be, and and uh, I'll go to as many games as I can and root for them. But you know, the key thing is is like I wish we had an owner that cared about the team and the fans and wanted to build a winning team. Uh, and uh, you know, if you want someone to step in to help them, I'm happy to do that. I love the response,
0: and I just the positive. Usually, the takes are very negative, and I just I love the optimism. That's the position we're all at as fans before a season kicks off. You got to be optimistic. Um, Darren, thank you. Who's your team? Oh, the Pacers. So, um, you know, it's – we're the we're the squad that is uh, – we've made the playoffs more than any other team in the past, like, 20 years or whatever. But it's always, you know, no one wants to come to the small city and play. But I don't know. There's a lot of chatter right now regarding uh, – victor oladipo and him not being happy or him uh potentially going somewhere else so i don't know we'll see they'll be good well i'm curious new coach we'll see what happens
1: this is probably the largest collection of victor oladipo autographs
0: (laughs) that's a lot i am
1: a huge fan of victor and all of his rpas and autographs and every one of these are oladipo cards
0: what so so what uh what's the connection uh with oladipo for you uh,
1: i've seen him play <laughs> i go to knicks games or i've been to a bunch of mavericks games and i've seen victor play and and I, I i like him a lot so my thesis on on victor is he's super underappreciated in the league he's a phenomenal player and he plays in a market that's not a media hub and he's a free eight well there's a chance he changes teams yeah and if a kid like victor comes to new york or la or you know another market like that maybe miami um you know i imagine he'll be on a bigger stage and uh you know the the card values shoot up from there uh and so i'm excited about him so we all we all like speculation
0: in sports cards and in sports in general so i gotta ask you because this has been one that's been floating around in my head would you take Victor Oladipo from the Indiana Pacers and there probably need to be some cash or other things involved, but the core of the trade would be Victor Oladipo for the Knicks pick this year and RJ Barrett. Would that be no, something you're interested in? I wouldn't <laughs> give RJ.
1: I would not <laughs> give RJ, um, but I would absolutely give the Knicks pick and cash and I'd probably bundle up a bunch of other <laughs> Knicks onto that deal. But I, I am not going with uh, Barrett and Mitchell. They're, Mitchell, They're your guys they're staying Nolan well, hope- will probably trade them. So I have no doubt that they're going to end up somewhere else. Absolutely. Well, it should be fun to see how it all shakes out. Draft will, man,
0: it's crazy. The Draft will have happened by the time this goes live, but Darren, thank you so much for your time. Go follow him at midlife, midlife crisis cards. I will have to get you back on the, I'm always down to talk technology and innovation.
1: Hopefully the listeners learn something today. Well, I had a great time. You got a phenomenal podcast and, Looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation. When I first read the article, I was like, man,
0: all these ideas aren't just in my head. Someone else is thinking about them. Darren speaks my language. I love it. Um, and I, I am a firm believer that we all just need to share our ideas. And we, if you are passionate and are dedicated to solving these problems, connect with others and just let's make it happen. Let's make it happen because we all believe that this market is going to continue to grow. And when anything continues to grow, it always opens the door for innovation and opportunities. So I hope that you learned something from this conversation. Definitely go hit that follow button on Midlife Crisis Cards. He's got a fun page and he's writing some awesome articles that I think you all will benefit from. But while you're at it, hit the subscribe button on Stacking Slash. Make sure you hit follow across all my social channels, at Stacking Slabs. I do appreciate you. I appreciate your time, energy that you're putting into being a member of the Stacking Slabs family. Don't hesitate to reach out. If I can do anything for you or if we can just have a conversation about cards, I'm always down for that. Enjoy your weekend. Take care of yourself. Take care of others around you. And I will be back next week. Peace. Peace.